Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1317, entitled Raiders of the Lost Dark Shadows. Our podcast title is Moon Pod 8. I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel the dark shadows creeping over me after I've been watching, binge-watching episodes of that, I'll say classic soap opera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's one of the things we're looking at today, including an, a brief sojourn within the confines of Moonbase 8, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a, a new television series. We'll start out with that, actually. A new television series, it's a comedy. And television sitcoms completely set in space. Mm-hmm. An honourable mention to the Galaxy Quest movie, Never Give Up, Never Surrender. Mm. There is a, a long list that ranges from astronauts through to Quark, Red mm. Dwarf, Hyperdrive, The Orville, and most recently Steve Carell and John Malkovich's Space Force, which we have reviewed on Zero G. And regarding the latter, uh, episode four of Space Force is called Lunar Habitat, and that featured an Earth-based simulator designed to test long-term living procedures in a moon base. We got to see how Carol's character, General Mark Naird, would act if he was an astronaut on a long-term space mission instead of just commanding one. Mm. And so undocking from Space Force, that's pretty much the entire premise of the new series Moon Base 8 which in spite of its numerical title is set neither on the moon nor does it at present run for more than six episodes. (laughs) So it's created and written by Fred Armisen, Tim Heidecker, Jonathan Crissell and John C. Riley. And it stars three of those people as the three earth nuts, um, earth noughts, enduring the simulated mission in one of several habitats built out in the dusty boondocks of Arizona. It's a bit NASA, crossed with one of the biosphere habitats that were all the rage a few decades ago to prepare us for living in space and on other worlds, as well as learning more about Earth's ecology in a microcosm. Mm -hmm. So I have watched all six episodes. Ah, you've gone through them. Interesting. What do you think having... Because uh, I haven't, I haven't watched them all. What's your thoughts now that you've sort of had a full view of the season? It's pretty nutty. <laughs> yeah, it, the vibe right away. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with much of Fred Armisen's other stuff. Um, I'm only mainly familiar with Portlandia, which is like a skip send up of hipsters basically in Portland, Oregon. And you can tell right away the tone they're going for. And I think if you've seen the Space Force episode, because when I was looking at this premise, I was like, I've watched this, haven't I? Have I watched this? And then I was like, no, the Space Force episode is what I'm thinking of. So yes, it's kooky. It's uncomfortable. 
it's awkward. <laughs> That's kind of the vibe we're getting here. Are we are we in for an, is it another space office, just as Space Force was? Is it more workplace comedy? That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, I think they're really starting to get legs on this idea of bottle shows that revolve around a workplace comedy. So like ones that are set in a superstore, ones that are set in a grocery store, ones that are set in this moon base simulation. And that's really what they're going for. But I really do think that it's in the execution and the level of engagement you can get with the audience as to whether it's successful or not. That's a little teaser as to what I thought of what I've seen in the show so far. All of those locations that you just met, I'm sure that there's a South Korean comedy that's got all of those in one place. Done it. (laughs) Done it first, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. But no, you're right. I think this workplace comedy idea, people are really cutting and pasting that to a variety different of locales with mixed success, in my opinion. So John C. Riley, henceforth known as JCR, which makes mm-hmm. him sound like some kind of 1980s video recorder. Yeah. Play, I first saw him playing opposite Leo DiCaprio in Scorsese's The Aviator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sort of established him as like the the slightly off everyman. You yeah, know, sure. he, he's not that far from um, uh, William H. Macy. Yeah, that's a good comparison, actually. Um, mm, mm. But he, but he has the face of an actor who you're probably going to have to look up, uh, Michael Pollard, who was known for having a sort of a baby face, right? And yep, yep, often yep. appeared uh, at many years younger roles, so yeah. like he'd play a teenager, even though I was like thirty. Yeah, yeah. F- famously known for uh, his turn in. Um, Star Trek uh, in an episode called Miri. Anyway, he reminds me of that sort of guy. I, mm. I, I remember him most as the adult World War II survivor who crash-landed on Kong Skull Island. Yeah, sure. And we can push the genre friendship a bit by naming him as Dr. Watson to Will Ferrell's Sherlock. Oh, oh no, let's forget that happened, please. Let's breeze on past. <laughs> forget. <laughs> but he has been in the horror movie Dark Water, and the fantasy horror movie Tale of Tales, Robert Altman's last film, a film that's very dear to me because I love the radio show. It's based on a prairie home companion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was I've the, seen that. the voice of Wreck-It Ralph. Yes, of course, the um, animated video game movie. And his most famous role, obvs, <laughs> Novacore <laughs> Corpsman. Roman Day in Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I feel like you can parachute him into any movie and instantly make it better. I I will say, having a little look back at his filmography, sometimes I think you might know him from his comedy work. So he's done, you know, a lo- lot of stuff with Will Ferrell, Step Brothers, those kinds of things. But he's done a lot of interesting stuff with, like, he was in The Lobster, Yorgos Lathamos's kooky well, Kookie's probably makes it sound more fun than it is. Surreal. Very surreal, surreal, bingo, surreal film about coupling and decoupling, let's say. And he's also in the adaptation of The Sisters Brothers, uh, which is a Patrick DeWitt book that I really enjoyed with Joaquin Phoenix. And he's done a lot of heavy sort of suburban dramas as well, like we need to talk about Kevin and Carnage. So he's all over the map, actually, when you kind of look back at what he's done, he's done some stuff with Paul Thomas Anderson and, yeah, he's dipping in and out of hard drama, genre, comedy. He's actually a very versatile fella. Oh, and, of course, the uh, the the recent um, Laurel and Hardy movie. Mm, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So he's in there and he is – he's fine, actually. He's just – he nails that sort of nervous 
not mm. quite right. He, he plays a, a helicopter pilot who's working in this moon base uh, mm. and we get the idea that he's come from a failed tour business and he's we're not really sure if he's a military veteran or not. He just kind of adopts some of the clothing, like baseball caps with ship names on it, and we mm. there's something wrong with him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's he's your classic no confidence, not bumbling per se, but you just kind of want him to get his stuff together. You just want him to, you know, kind of assert himself a little. Yeah, and they call him his name in the uh, the show is is Cap. Mm. And at first I thought he was the captain, but they just call him Cap. That's his his name. So I'm really thinking they're playing with that. And this is because uh, the the actors are very much involved in the writing and creation of this story. Mm-hmm. It feels like one of those actors' projects. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and because some of them are Saturday Night Live veterans, there's that feeling too, like you're watching this long sketch. Totally. And and I think in some ways I wonder if the concept has enough legs to be TV series itself. Um, but, yeah, very much comedian's vehicle. Along with uh, Fred Armisen, who plays Dr. Skip Hanai, who's the science guy. He's the son of a famous astronaut hero with all of the baggage that that implies for him to succeed. Uh, he's one of the guys from SNL and mm. also a co-creator of the comedy horror series Los Espookies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Might check that out. Mm-hmm. Also, look out for Tim Heidecker playing Professor Scott Rook Sloan. Uh, he's a Christian who wants to spread the word of God in space, a religious family man with lots of kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but he's not all that good at religious quotes. Yeah. So again, there's something off with him. And I'm yeah. wondering, like, does Moonbase One have all of the people with the right stuff? I think so, yeah. <laughs> this is like your F list. It's not even your B list. It's your Z list. <laughs> it's like if everybody else fails, they get down to these guys. These yeah. are like these are like the fourth backup backup, you know, 25th in line for the throne. It's like their mum asked if they could be on the team and so the coach is like, all right, just let them in, let them in, just give them a uniform, come on, put them over there. They actually do have a lot of fun with the uniforms in this too. They make a big deal of them at, yeah. one, at one stage in the series. Uh, Tim Heidecker was the is the Tim in the Tim and Eric comedy duo, oh. along with Eric uh, Wareheim. They also he also hosted a, a web series podcast called On Cinema, and and he played Mister Richards, the dad in the Josh Trank Fantastic Four movie. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. I, I expect a shock, gasp of horror there, but not a sausage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's he's good too. He he has um he's trying to trying to play the peacemaker between the engineer and and the cap character. Uh, yeah. So you've got these three stars build, and there's a a four man crew in the base at the first episode, so you know that there's probably a tone setting moment going to happen, and it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't make you wait for that. <laughs> All the tropes are, are shown in these six episodes. They don't actually know what NASA stands for. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's such an easy, um, a low-hanging fruit target, but, you know, you got to do it. They run out of water and have to improvise so that, you know, choice of cleaning solutions, olive oil cut with vinegar, champagne, and, of course, pee. <laughs> of course, oh, of course. It really does remind me of like improv in drama class. Like, here's the concept: moon base, no water, go. 
and then all this kind of stuff unfolds. There are interactions with civilians outside the base who are looking on rather baffled by the whole thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You know, they run into like illness in their little enclosed universe, uh, very similar to Red Dwarf, actually, that one was, what it reminded me. Uh, And that trope of NASA being underfunded compared to, say, SpaceX, Mm -hmm. uh, sponsorships instead of spaceships. Uh, And they actually do have an encounter with the muskies the Elon Muskies, (laughs) which is very fun. Look, I actually enjoyed it. It's only six episodes, so it's Mm. all in all, it's only a little bit longer than your average movie if you put them all together. Yeah, true, true. I I got something out of this and it almost felt like I'd I'd fallen between the gaps of Space Force. Yeah, yeah. You get to see this is what they didn't show and you kind of get this extra little coda of what that concept is, yeah. You know, Space Force was was critically panned, but it did seem to find its niche in um, mm. in the Netflix sense. Oh, this one's on uh, Stan. Stan Insta- yeah, so not a Netflix one at all. So, no. got, so we've got two competing space comedies on two of the streaming networks. Exactly. I mean, and this one is more focused. I will say personally, I didn't couldn't really get on with it that much. I just found that it was. Uh, I mean, I get the awkward comedy thing and sometimes I'm really into it, sometimes I'm not. Like I love Flight of the Concords. I love, you know, yeah. weird people, horrible people doing awkward things like Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But this just didn't strike with me and I just felt a bit exasperated with it. Um, you know, like just that feeling of, guys, like, oh, but it, it wasn't as fun as I would hope. I think there's some interesting ideas there. A part of me would actually watch like a heavy drama set in this concept like you know they're in this simulation and something happens and then all of a sudden it's not a simulation anymore or but I just felt a bit tired with this and maybe it's because I just watched Space Force and I kind of was done which sounds bad um no no, I, no. I don't yeah I don't think it's bad I think it's it's doing exactly what it sets out to do but it just didn't didn't quite hit with me this time so yeah, I think it's probably a try it and see. If you like it, you'll get a good sense right away about whether it's going to be for you. I, I felt it got better as it went along, uh, ah, as right. you accumulated knowledge of the characters and the situations mm-hmm. that they, they were in. And so I felt like a little bit like I was reading a comic strip. And, you know, after a while, even a, even a really dumb comic strip sort of gives you a sense yeah. of, of belonging. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know what that says about me, (laughs) but (laughs) but yeah. So I I got I got more out of it by the time I'd watched the six episodes. But yeah, I was a bit ambivalent about it at certain times. But they kept me going for long enough, and some of the ideas were genuinely funny. Uh, Maybe the execution didn't quite carry it. Sometimes the execution uh, overran the the idea. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so a bit uneven, but you know, six episodes. This is where they get you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will give a shout-out to a special guest appearance by The Shelves. Now, you know, I've talked about the Wilhelm scream before on Zero G mm-hmm. many times, that iconic mm-hmm. sound effect that keeps popping up in on just about 500 or 600 or 1,000 movies. Yep. Uh, in this case, this is a visual scream to me, The Shelves. They're, there's a certain type of cool room shelf that mm-hmm. you use in walk-in refrigerators and in industrial settings and in – uh, in kitchens, commercial kitchens and so on. They're, mm-hmm. They've got a, a little zigzag support girder that runs across horizontal, wire shelves, 
<laughs> this is very specific. I know this because I have them. Yeah, and sure, I'm, of course. <laughs> and they appear everywhere. Right. Now mm-hmm. that I've told you about the shelves, <laughs> you will never get it out of your head. You'll be you'll be seeing it. Okay, fair enough in kitchen settings, mm-hmm. but it seems to be a, a popular prop in science fiction settings too. Okay, hardest working prop in Hollywood, huh? Yeah. So look out for the shelves. <laughs> Noted. So it's Moonbase Eight. It's six episodes on stand. Maybe not for everybody, but you know, I, I did enjoy it from one for what I, I, I wanted at the time. I'm I'm, I'm looking for a, another sitcom at the moment. Mm. I'm I'm resorting to binge watching old episodes of Cheers. Oh, that's a nice vibe, though. Which is fun. Yeah, yeah. And Diane is totally more funny than Rebecca, but <laughs> never watched Cheers. That's my I. Uh... Yeah, I think that was slightly before my time. I watched a lot of Frasier growing up, so I think that kind of came after Cheers. Yeah, well, it's spun off from Cheers. Spin off, yeah. yeah. And that's even better, actually. Frasier's my mm-hmm. favourite of the two. But I'm happy to watch Cheers again, which, again, is another one of those ones that's being um, broadcast on the streaming. All right, so we have a track now, and we have actually found <laughs> John C. Riley singing. Yes. In uh, Walk Hard. The Dewey Cox story. Um, you know a little bit about this, Megan. Yeah, so this film is one of your uh, kind of parody biopics, and it's roughly it's one of those you know like Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash biopic, but it's a, a send up, and it has a fake Dewey Cox. Obviously, is your fake singer, and then they build this you know his life, and they include some kind of. Um, hints as to other musicians that you might recognize and so on and so forth. So I think, and he did all the singing for the soundtrack and I think was pretty highly lauded. I think people really enjoyed this one and it's a Judd Apatow produced uh, picture. So he does a lot of the comedy stuff that you'd be familiar with. Like, and uh, it was directed by Jake Kasdan, who's been involved in the new Jumanji films and things like that. So this is firmly a comedy, but I think people really enjoyed that John C. Riley really went for it in this. And yeah, it gives us some nice tunes to play here on Zero G. What one have you picked for us? Well, I was looking for a John C. Riley song because, you know, celebrity singers, we love that. Mm-hmm. And he sings Starman. Ah, so perfect. Our Bowie. Our weekly Bowie. It, it, it's just karma. So this is that song from Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Triple R. R. He's a sick man. This is where sick people come. Zero G is fun, as you were. That was Starman, sung by John C. Riley, and that was his rendition that was in uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Quite a nice set of pipes, if I do say so myself. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, dang, he's good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not William Shatner good, but <laughs> I, I, I want to go and watch that film. As, mm-hmm. as uh, Liz Lemon would say, I want to go to that place. Mm, exactly. Right. Now, a place that I have been wanting to go to and indeed have cleaved to is The Mandalorian Season 2 on Disney+. Yes. Plus. Oh, it's so good. I've only seen one episode that I didn't think was completely up to scratch. Okay. So far. And the others have all been a lot of fun. Um, mm. 
we were talking, I think, last week about, um, or perhaps the week before, an episode called The Heiress, directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where Mando had to transport a frog lady. Yes. <laughs> and before you could say spawn, well, actually, that, that is indeed what was happening. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was a, that was a fine episode, and um, I really enjoyed this one. I don't want to give too much away about it, but um, mm. it involves an ocean planet for a start, mm-hmm. deployed to far greater effect <laughs> than in, in its you know in a brief uh, fifteen minute sequence <laughs> compared to that entire ocean scene in the last Star Wars movie. Uh, and we also get to meet some more Mandalorians. Yes, that was a really nice one, actually. Oh, I thought that was so spectacular. For me, that's one of the highlights of the series, just that yeah. extra extra Mando goodness they had there. Mm-hmm. Oh, so fine. And the the battle that, that, that uh, evolved out of that encounter was one of the great close quarter combat sequences that I've ever seen in science fiction. Uh, it um, reminded me of that excellent phaser battle that they had in Star Trek Discovery uh, in one one of the previous seasons. Oh, so amazing. Those Mandos were everywhere. I will say that that the most recent episode, uh, it really felt to me like so Star Warsy, and I mean that in the best way. It really reminded me of the feeling you get when you watch the originals for the first time. There was a lot of that energy there, even in the editing and the cut sequences and the actual structure of that episode, like what we got to see and the fight. It really, it just felt so nostalgic, and I think it was done in a really lovely way. Like I wouldn't want a whole season of that, but I thought it was just the right time to introduce, okay, look, here's a little bit of action for you and some stuff you want to see. And, you know, this is Star Wars. Like this is the kind of cool stuff that that we get to experience. And I will, look, I'm going to rescind what I did say a couple of episodes ago when I said you could get away with watching it with limited knowledge. I do think it's getting to a point now where, yeah, you need to know a bit of the backstory. You need to have a basic, at least watch the original movies yeah uh, and then you're fine from there but i do think we're getting into territory where you're going to get so much more out of it if you're familiar with star wars so yeah and maybe not just the original movies but some of the cartoon series like clone wars there's a there's a lot uh, and rebels i think there's a lot a lot from those that are showing up in in this now Mm -hmm. Uh, um and did you spot i mean we were talking we're waxing lyrical about timothy oliphant appearing mm-hmm. as uh, Cobb Vanth, the um, the Marshall Sheriff-type mm-hmm. character a few episodes ago. And, of course, we've got Katie Sackoff ah. from New Battlestar Galactica who appears as oh, well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. And speaking of uh, Deadwood alumni, Titus Welliver appeared as the Imperial captain of a starship. Right, yep. And, mm-hmm. and he plays it so deadpan. Yeah, you know, like, like I am not impressed by anything. I can handle all of this. I've got mm-hmm. my 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 sharply creased uniform. I may be an imperial remnant, but I'm still 
part of the old empire. <laughs> yeah. But so much is happening in his expression. Like I think some of his reactions, even though they are this deadpan, you can still get a sense of what's going on there. There's some really nice acting in this and I think it it, it really does elevate what could be just a bit of an action-y episode. And, uh, yeah, it's, cool. and it's good to see Gina Carano coming back as mm-hmm. Cara Dune. And, a favourite, a favourite, And yeah. Carl Weathers as Grief Carga. <laughs> And it it did leave us on a note where, I mean, where you're like, ooh, okay, things are about to get real. We're really getting into territory here. I'm ex- I'm very excited for the next drop. Um, next and Mando, he's a hell of a star pilot. Yeah. <laughs> Do you notice his skill set gets better as he goes along? I mean, you got to have him doing cool stuff, right? You know, even if it's one man can't do that much. But he's a Mandalorian, so That's right. maybe he can. He's a, a one Mando army. And exactly. That episode, the, the that other episode we were talking about was the siege, and it's actually directed by Carl Weathers. Mm. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. Mm. And a couple of these episodes have uh, been written by John Favreau himself. He's very close to this material, I think. I think this is kind of his baby, from what I gather. Yeah, and baby Yoda. <laughs> <They're>, <gasps> Just getting cuter. They're trying actually to pitch him not so cute, so he'll he'll do gross things. Oh, yeah, he's getting into a little bit of a bratty phase. He'll do things where you're like, don't do that, come on. <laughs> oh, my God, crossover, Disney, franchise, Baby Groot. Oh, yeah, they've thought of it, I'm sure. And Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> Strong, cutest baby of them all. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so, look, just continuing to enjoy the enjoy the hell out of this show, The Mandalorian. Look, I know... You know, we're very much aware of how many other tropes they're roping into this, um, uh, samurai movie tropes and spaghetti westerns and just so many other things, as well as the huge amount of luggage that comes with the Star Wars universe in general. Uh, but, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> I, I should not be having this much fun, you know, because... It's, it's just so good and it's so cool that, you know, we thought that franchise was done and it was like oh, left a bit of a weak bang like I think I was a bit disappointed in the most recent movie and then here we just get this awesome series dropped on us that's continued to be strong across one and a bit seasons we've only seen what four of the next step of the season two so no very exciting very nice surprise very nice surprise mm, and it's on uh, Disney plus mm-hmm. uh, now Star Trek Discovery we're going to use our our ability to jump through time and space and universes. <laughs> mm-hmm. They have found the Federation, mm-hmm. which was I thought was going to be another one of those long quests, but no, we're there. <laughs> Foiled again. We we got Rob Jan again. <laughs> I, I figured out the lack of sustained suspense on the plot points in Star Trek Discovery. The the disc mm. the disco is using her instantaneous spore drive to jump directly between story highlights. None of, none of that mucking around in subspaces you get there. It's just bang, we're there. <laughs> Good stuff, yeah. Yeah, get it done and we're there. Um, look, I'm, I'm giving away a few spoilers here as we've done for the Mando because we're like an episode behind there. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm trying not to do too much in it, but yeah, we get there. Um, we're in season three of Discovery. We're 900 years in the future of the Star Trek era that we saw in classic Star Trek which was 10 years before, oh, you know, it's very complicated, before <laughs> Captain Kirk sort of sojourned mm-hmm. aboard the Enterprise. We've met the new commander of what's left of Starfleet and the Federation, Admiral Admiral Vance, who's played by Oded Fair. 
And I have seen him before a long time ago. Israeli actor. He played um, uh, Ardef Bay in the Mummy movies. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he's also been in, um, he appeared as Jafar in Once Upon a Time. He tends to get these Middle Eastern roles. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just hardcore as a Starfleet Admiral. He's trying to hold together what's left of the Federation without without ships that are uh, warp drive capable or okay. they take forever to get to places. Actually, I don't even know how yeah. they do that. I think they've got some dilithium left. We found out that the burn that knocked out all of the starships is something that affected their warp drives and caused them all to detonate. All, oh, wow. All at once, okay. everywhere, yeah. but not quite. There are some details on that that I'll, I'll leave silent at the moment. Michelle Yeoh is still playing former Empress of the Mirrorverse, uh, Philippa Giorgio. She's having mm-hmm. some visions. Oh. And it's proving to be an unexpectedly comic relief take. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> she's like, you know, she's take no prisoners. She enjoys cruelty. These are her hobbies. <laughs> uh, she hasn't got a Starfleet attitude at all. And she can compose assault haiku in battle, something that Cyrano de Bergerac would admire greatly. <laughs> uh, and she is just awesome. I tune in to watch Empress Giorgio's latest sort of uh, unusual exceeding expectations moment. And all of the Discovery true are tr- crew are trying to adjust to liaisoning with people from the very far future and they're doing it really well because this is like you know star trek technology is in advance of our own and now suddenly we're 900 years in advance of theirs and they're getting future shock too but it's also future delight and we're losing some crew members along the way Um, Mm -hmm. and the captain of the discovery uh, saru he has to have a dinner to try and raise morale and bond the bridge crew together, and it goes horribly wrong. Oh, of course, okay. <laughs> and the disco is now being used as a rapid response unit by the what's left of the Starfleet, mm-hmm. uh, so they can they can they can jump quickly to places where the 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 ships that uh, survived cannot. Um, they go to the a space seed vault. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about okay. uh, ripped from the pages of, of 21st century technology. It's got nothing mm. to do with Khan, this space seed vault, by the way. And the other characters, they've introduced a new one, um, Adira, played by actor Blue Del Barrio, um, who has an interesting backstory. The character uh, is non-binary mm-hmm. and... I get confused with this because there is a race of characters in Star Trek called the Binars. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Who, who communicate in binary code. But we're, we're talking more about a gender orientation here in yeah. this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's very confusing because they are also a trill, which is, you know, the, the, oh. the, the symbiotic little alien creature. So it's very right. complicated, but it's all about representation and we know how important that is and how Star Trek has always been out there in the forefront of that. So highly approve of that. <laughs> uh, we've also got Grudge the Cat. Oh, a cat. You'll be pleased. The, the big main coon. I mean, this is a big cat. Like, <laughs> you know, huge. It's like we're not really sure if it's an alien or not in itself. But it's, right. But it's so cute. <laughs> There's some good moments with Grudge. Um and it's named Grudge because you can carry it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's cool. Just. 
the, the Discovery's computer is, has gone seemingly full AI, mm-hmm. which is an echo of previous series and short treks. Tig Notaro, the comedian, is still on board. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she went with them and still having trouble with Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets. <laughs> so, you know, and the technology is so well composed in this future era. We're getting to see floating chairs just casually deployed. Wow. And the ships have detachable nacelles, so the engines can actually float off. They don't have to be actually connected to the ship. Oh, wow. There's programmable matter, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. Um, the new communication badges, they have holographic displays. Um, they've got transporters and tricorders built into the badges. Yeah, okay. And it's very Stark Trek, if I may say, you know, very high sort of frontier stuff. And it's there are callbacks to some very old friends when they find Starfleet, which I found quite moving, you know. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying Discovery as well. This is the thing. You know, we talk about golden ages of television and silver ages and all that sort of stuff like we do about comic books too. Uh, mm. I don't know. We've, we're living in the latinum age at the moment. <laughs> I think. Mm. Yeah, so Star Trek Discovery season three rolling out. Now, we were going to play a track from The Mandalorian, but I think we'll go with the Star Trek Discovery one instead. And this is Star Trek Discovery a disco version, Star Trek Discovery Disco. <laughs> and it's by the Retro Crowd, and it's from Sci Fi Heroes 80s cartoons. Hi, this is Scott Bakula. Welcome aboard Zero G. Hmm. <laughs> the, the disco version of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> and here, you know, when I'm watching it, I usually watch it Friday nights because, you know, I'm a geek. And so it's like I'm spending Friday nights at the disco, which is something I never actually did in my entire life. So there you go. Now's your chance. Now's my chance. And that's by the retro crowd. (sighs) Now, we just had Scott Bakula say where you are and what you're listening to, and Bakula rhymes with Dracula, which leads us to Dark Shadows. (laughs) Mm. Ah, yes. So. Uh, in Dark Shadows of Particular Note is Bob Cobert's music score. And this is the original soundtrack to Dark Shadows. And we'll just give you about, uh, I don't know, a minute of that theme here to give you a bit of uh, atmosphere. Hi, this is Joss Whedon, creator of Serenity, Buffy, and Angel. Welcome to New Melbourne, home of fish, fish-based activities, Zero-G, and Radio 3 Triple R FM. Triple R, it's independent radio, and it aims to misbehave. Bob Cobert's main title theme for Dark Shadows. Bob Cobert mm-hmm. was a particular collaborator with Dan Curtis, the creator of Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows was a gothic soap opera, US American, uh, originally aired on the ABC television network. That's in the US, of course. It's daytime television. Mm. Now, you know, supernatural TV series now, they're a, a dime a dozen. They're, they're everywhere. Yeah, totally. But Dark Shadows was something special back in 1966, mm. and it ran forever. 
basically <laughs> from 66 to 71, one episode per day. That is so, and a total of 1,225 episodes, I believe. That is a lot of content. It is likely the most consistently aired, longest running fantasy series ever. Nice. And that actually puts it ahead of other shows like Stargate, Supernatural, Doctor Who, uh, mm-hmm. maybe Star Trek, depending on how many you put together, uh, mm. and even um, the American series Space Patrol, which had 1,100 episodes. There are all sorts of other shows that are, have got long legs too, but this is a supernatural series, and it's a soap opera. If you've ever seen the one called Passions yes. from 2007, in 2008. That's a kind of a similar take, only a lot more raunchier than the 1966 one. <laughs> so Dan Curtis, who created it, he was known for lots of macabre shows, the uh, the Night Stalker, oh, and the series that it inspired. He also did Trilogy of Terror, which is mm-hmm. a an anthology movie beloved to horror movie fans. And he also worked a lot with Richard Matheson and William F. Nolan, who are great horror and science fiction writers. Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dracula in 73, Picture of Dorian Gray. Well, you get where we're going there. And he also did The Winds of War too, the uh, miniseries. Now, Dark Shadows is basically about the Collins family of Collinsport, Collinsport, I should say, uh, in Maine. Does that put us in Stephen King country? Yeah, I think so. It does. And it ran for quite some time. It did have ghost elements in it and other mm-hmm. light supernatural. Uh, and, you know, it was basically riffing off all of that gothic romance stuff that we've been talking about recently on Zero yes, G. exactly. But it started to fail in the ratings. Yeah, they said, <laughs> fix it or you're off. And so... <laughs> In, they introduced in 1968 Barnabas Collins, the vampire, and a guy called Jonathan Frid. Yes, he was the guy who played Barnabas Collins. Uh, With tongue firmly in cheek and those cheeks looking a bit like Jeremy Brett's, I thought. <laughs> uh, he's an, an, an elegant dresser and he shows up one night, there's a giveaway, at uh, the Collins house introducing himself as a long-lost cousin. <laughs> and there's a portrait, of course, in the house of him from his, ah. you know, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> there you have it. And this guy, Jonathan Frid, he is, was a Canadian actor and he appeared in quite a few horror things along the way, not as many as he could have. I think he did get typecast as Barnabas Collins. And, in fact, he ended up doing the convention circuit. Yeah, right, okay. Playing Barnabas, like many genre actors. Yeah, yeah, there's money in that. Yeah. He also appeared in the 1986-87 to Broadway revival of Arsenic and Old Lace playing Jonathan Brewster. I should give him his full name, John Herbert Jonathan Frid. So, yeah, and he appeared in this show, well, more or less because he's a vampire, and one of the other tropes in it is that Many of the characters in the show are played by the same actors. It's like an ensemble cast. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, of course, being a a supernatural series, people came back 
even if they've yeah. been killed and you know perfect I should also mention that this is a show that if you're familiar with um, 70s and 60s television and even further on, you'll recognise a lot of the guest actors who pop up along the way. Oh, okay, cool. And even some of the regulars, like Mitchell Ryan is in there in uh, in Collinsport and play, he played um, Edward Montgomery, Greg's father in Dharma and Greg. Oh, cool. He also happened to play Kyle Riker, father of William Riker in Star Trek The Next Generation. So a lot of genre dads there. And this show was so wildly popular with teens who'd just come home from school in the daytime and it went into like gold key comic books. I remember it from those. Uh, Mm. Tie-in books. There were board games. (laughs) (laughs) Colouring books. Oh, wow. The first big franchise. I can see the appeal of this in terms of getting hooked on it. Like there's a particular atmosphere. The plot is very slow. Barely anything happens per episode. So you, you're like, oh, I'll just tune in tomorrow and then I'll just tune in tomorrow and then next thing you know, you're not a teenager anymore and you've been watching it for five years. <laughs> and you're 200 years old. Exactly. <laughs> so they, they tried to do it again. Catch the Lightning in a Bottle again in 1991 where they had uh, Roy Thinnes, um, who fans of the old Space Invaders show called The Invaders will know, um, Barbara Steele and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <gasps> no. In, yeah, he was playing um, David Collins in the 1991 reboot. And, of course, there was um, a TV pilot in 2004 that failed, didn't, no one picked it up. And then, of course, there's uh, Tim Burton's film in 2012 mm. with Johnny Depp in it, which was I thought was just too camp and silly for words. That, that's the thing. You look like I watch some of the older 60s episodes. There's some black and white, some in colour. And, yes, it's melodramatic. There's a lot of close-ups and things. but it's And it is camp and over the top. But there was something about Burton's way that he did it that I agree it was it didn't quite have the heart. It didn't quite hit you. Uh, in the in the fields, I guess. Um, yeah, it was a bit weird, weird adaptation. It's been actually streamed. Some of the episodes they usually strip them down uh, mm. from episode two two hundred and ten to two hundred and forty nine because that's like the introduction of Barnabas Collins. No one's interested in the stuff before that. <laughs> <laughs> and they had that on Hulu, and then uh, on. Hulu Plus, and then, you know, they just they, they span it out for a, a few different places. Uh, I actually have the Madman collection myself, which is Dark Shadows, the oh. classic collection, which has 80 episodes in it. Sometimes it feels like you're just watching the same episode over and over again because <laughs> it has that trope, you know, of soaps that you spend half of it recapping. Yeah, yes, and everything is exposition. So someone will get a note and they'll say, this note looks like it's from Angela, but Angela's dead, so I don't know if it can be from Angela. So it's a lot of explaining so the audience can catch up if they've just happened to tune into that episode. So I I do think it would be, I think it's a nostalgia watch. Like as someone who only has seen that Tim Burton adaptation, it's very hard. I think if you had grown up watching it or you'd watched a lot of it before, that would be a good time for you to revisit this because it's now on Amazon Prime, we should mention. They've got a whole bunch of seasons on Amazon Prime. Uh, I think me coming at it afresh, like I just, there was 
very little. I could not tell what was going on. Uh, it moves very slowly. And it and it's not really great for binging when literally it's a soap that plods along so slowly. I can see the appeal and I can see why people probably have really strong feelings for the show. Absolutely. But I think it, it's now the time has passed for me to get into it, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I do love, I looked, I was looking at the storylines and I love how they've got, you know, some in the 1800s, 1900s, and then they've got 1970, parallel time, 1841, parallel time. So I, I think that's kind of cool. It's, again, a classic trope of soap operas, including Passions, by the way. They used to do that, do that a lot. It was all a dream, this episode, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so as Barnabas Collins says, I've always loved Collinswood. It, it's just as I remember it. <laughs> And, you know, he's like he's very smooth in explaining that the memories of the place, because he's really familiar with the mansion, including the mm. old part of it, that they've been passed down through his branch of the family. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, you know, because it's done live to tape. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what that style is. Okay, yeah. Which means that whenever they stumble over a line, they just keep going. That's that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they find it difficult but not impossible to put in special effects so that they try and do a lot of those practical and in-camera. So there's that, and sometimes they don't always work. <laughs> so, uh, and you'll also find that the sound effects are quite critical in this too. Like when they introduced Barnabas Collins, you heard the heartbeat, ah, this sort of yeah, right. telltale heart hidden away in the walls. That was, I thought that was quite effective. And then sometimes you'll jump over to a, a different set, which is the Blue Whale, which is the – uh, sort of the the tavern and inn in this seaport town, and, mm-hmm. and the music there they'll be playing like sixties pop and then jazz and <laughs> I like that. and then easy listening. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's so a real juxtaposition of our gothic mansion and yeah. then like pokey little bar. And it, and you think you what like you know you're watching a normal soap opera until they say, well, they found this dead calf that had been totally drained of blood. <laughs> you know. They're having fun with it, I think. Yeah. I think they, I think they did, but but they weren't necessarily camping it up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think they played it straight. Yeah, it's a delicate sort of balance. Look, I'm sure you could watch this now and play a drinking game, <laughs> <laughs> and, and get quite sozzled fairly quickly. I should imagine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, look, it's one for the the nostalgia, and if you haven't seen it. You know, it's it's good retro fun for a while. I, I can't imagine watching all 1,000 episodes. No. <laughs> and I would have only seen a few of these episodes back in the day myself. I can barely remember them. So it is kind of fun to catch up with them now because it, it feels like this is one of the secret hidden origins of supernatural genre on mm. television. I mean, I know there are other ones, but this one, this was very long running. It was influential. A lot of the showrunners of of the day from the the seventies, eighties, and nineties will have watched this. Yeah, yeah. So you know, certainly they'll be familiar with the Night Stalker and those other shows that are sort of in that parallel universe. Mm. of uh, creator Dan Curtis. So it is the easily accessible on Amazon Prime as the Dark Shadows collection. Uh, and that's the, the beginning is the ones which will show you the, the Barnabas Collins introduction. And, of course, this Madman collection as well. So, yeah, a, a cult classic. 
<laughs> with all that that implies. And it's probably about as exciting as watching long, early serials of Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> um, and there are some great shows in the Doctor Who ones, but let's be honest, they drag a bit <laughs> at times. But, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, that's how it works. So Dark Shadows, one maybe to watch. If, <laughs> if you binge watched it through the pandemic, you're, you deserve what you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about it for Zero G4 today, I think. Yeah, yeah. really come up to time. We've been all over the place. Gothic mansion, space. Yeah. Gothic mansions in space. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Nevada desert. <laughs> Not quite space yet. So we'll go out with The Ballad of Barnabas Collins, and this is by the Von Hoffman Orchestra from a brilliantly titled album, Monster University Pajama Party. Oh, love it. <laughs> Ah, okay. Now, thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.